Turn with me in the Word of God to Ezekiel chapter 8 for a few introductory thoughts this morning about our worship. Here on April 24th, the year 2011. This is a special privilege of your week. It should be the high point of your week if your heart is right. By God's will, His gracious will, we'll spend four hours together today between now, 9 o'clock in the morning and 1 p.m. this afternoon. We'll have a wonderful time of fellowship in the middle, and we shall consider God's Word. That four hours is only two and a half percent. Those in the back of the room, please make room for those who have arrived. Four hours out of 168 hours is only two and a half percent of your week. So instead of looking at this as a chore to endure, look at it as an opportunity of four hours to worship God according to His own commandments. Our city, covered with Baptist churches and other so-called Christian churches, and our nation and our world has set aside this day with the Catholics as uh, Easter Sunday. And so already this day, with that beautiful sun shining outside, there have been sunrise services across our city, across our nation, and across the world, all in a deluded and ignorant way of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. We are different from them, and we repudiate and reject all that they're doing this day in the name of Ishtar and Astarte and Aphrodite, because we are going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ the way the Bible teaches us. We live in a county where there are around 500 Baptist churches, and we've chosen to assemble separate from them in this place, and we better have good reason for doing so, or it appears to be an arrogant self-confidence or an arrogant exclusivism rather than a commitment to truth. But Ezekiel 8 and 9 help us when it comes to this matter of Easter Sunday. Some of you, when you read the first chapter of Ezekiel a few weeks ago, you wondered why the prophet gave such a graphic, obscure, and wild description of the glory of God. But if you read Ezekiel 8 carefully, and if it was if it was your choice last evening to read in the way of preparation for today's worship, you found that in the first four verses that Ezekiel sees a man with the glory of God from that first chapter. Because when it comes to judging sin and compromise in the part of God's people, we want to see the glory of God and let it move us to living virtuously and righteously and worshiping according to spirit and truth. And that is why the glory of God appeared to him. And verse 4 tells us, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, according to the vision that I saw in the plain. I am not going to preach this passage to you. I've preached it before, and I simply want to make note of it for your instruction, and it will serve our purpose for this day. My brethren, you may be able to escape a little bit today since my preaching will not be directed so pointedly at you as it normally is. 
but it will be pointed at all the sin and compromise and abominations taking place around us in the name of Jesus Christ. But if you go out of this place having been blessed with a greater revelation of truth than others, and you go home and live in the privacy of your home or the privacy of your heart, contrary to the word of God, you are a terrible hypocrite, and God will descend in judgment upon you. Judgment begins at the house of God. And let us fear that warning of our brother Peter. We have here four abominations. The first one is in verses 5 through 6, where there was an image of jealousy set up in the very court of the temple of God. Manasseh had set up an image to Baal in the house of the Lord. And it was an image of jealousy because our God is a jealous God and He wants all of our worship according to His prescribed ways of worship. And so it is called the image of jealousy. And the Lord points it out to Ezekiel. Then, in verses 7 through 12, He shows the men of Israel in secret, worshiping their abominable images, even of creeping things and of beasts, instead of the living God, the Lord Jehovah. He told them that the image of jealousy in verses 5 and 6, or he told him, Ezekiel, was an abomination, but he had greater abominations to show him. Now it's appalling to us to think of an image to Baal in the court of the temple of the Lord. But then he goes beyond that and he shows men in the privacy of their hearts and in their private worship and in their giving of incense and prayers, they're praying to beasts. And to creeping things. And then he says, I have a greater abomination to show you. And he shows them in verses 13 and 14 that the women of Israel were were weeping for Tammuz. Very briefly, Tammuz is the lover of the goddess of love, sex, fertility, and spring of the Babylonians, the Phoenicians, the Greeks, and the Egyptians under the names of Ishtar, Astarte, Aphrodite, and Isis. He descended into hell at the summer solstice, when the days begin to get shorter and he comes back to life at the winter solstice when the days turn around and become to grow again. And Tammuz was his, was her lover. And on the first day after the summer solstice, efforts were made to mourn the death of Tammuz, because of the declining days after the summer solstice. You can go look this up now. It is wonderful that we live in a generation where there is the opportunity for those who care about truth to confirm anything. But that very vehicle of truth is used by others to confirm nothing and to promote a great deal of error. And so we see the women of Israel... Worshipping for the lover of the goddess of love, sex, and fertility and spring of the Babylonians, Phoenicians, Greeks, Egyptians. Remember, they all have one spirit motivating their religion. So they're rather consistent and united across many fronts. It's the spirit of the devil. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. But the prophet tells us, that he has a greater abomination to show. And so in verses 15 through 16, 
we see the prophet looking into the inner court of the Lord's house and at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, I'm in the middle of verse 16, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun toward the east. If you are worshiping the sun toward the east, you are at a sunrise service because that is when the sun is in the east. And your back is to the temple of the Lord. I thank God that in the layout of His temple, His altar was in the west. And if we lay out a building, we will put you facing the west by the grace of God, if that's allowable, on our property. But notice this sunrise service here, and it's the culmination of four abominations that were taking place in the church of God. In the church of God. These were not the Babylonians, the Phoenicians, the Greeks, or the Egyptians. These were the people of God. These were the Hebrews. These were the Israelites. But they had adopted false religion from other nations. And it was an abomination to the Lord. And the Lord asks Ezekiel, O son of man, have you seen what I've just shown you? This fourfold abomination. Is it a light thing that Israel can do this? I am going to deal in my fury with them. And so we come to chapter 9. Many years ago, when I came back from a vacation where the Lord had stirred me deeply and powerfully with the ninth chapter, I preached it to you at length. In Ezekiel chapter 9, I want you to understand that the Lord God of heaven called forth in the first verse those that have the charge over the city. There is an unseen race of beings in this assembly and around this assembly, and in the assemblies throughout the earth. They are the angels of God. They are His watchers. They watch what we do. They know the Word of God. They watch men like Nebuchadnezzar and call for His judgment, as Daniel chapter 4 explains to us. In this place, God calls them forth. He says, I want those that have charge of this city to draw near every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And they weren't carrying mouse guns like M16s, nor were they carrying science fiction like laser guns. They had real slaughter weapons, as they're called later in this chapter. But among those six men that came forward, those six angels responsible for the judgment of Jerusalem... There was another angel among them, clothed in linen, with an inkhorn. And that angel went through the assembly by the orders of God, and took from that inkhorn and made a mark on the foreheads of all those that sighed, all those that were grieved, all those that were stirred up, all those that were angry about the abominations being taken be taking place in Jerusalem in the name of God and in the worship of God. And the Lord God Almighty directed those angels, those six angels with their weapons of slaughter to go through the city and to destroy everyone except those that had a mark on their forehead. May it be true of us this day, for it is true that there are watchers in this assembly. May it be true that they mark us 
with their inkhorns that we sigh and we grieve and we are stirred and we are angry at all the compromise and that we are committed that we will not compromise nor will we change in this church nor will we compromise nor will we change in our homes. And they hear every word that I'm saying and they know that you have two ears because they see them both. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. This is the word of the Lord. Right. When other so-called Christians find out that we do not celebrate Good Friday, Easter, Lent, or Holy Week, they ask, what kind of a Christian are you? Are you even a Christian? We're Bible Christians, is the simplest answer. They then ask, well, how in the world do you celebrate and observe the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection? That's what Easter's for, is to remember His death and His resurrection. MSN's own homepage today pointed out where eggs came from thousands of years before the, the rise of Christianity, it was the worship of the sun god. Go look at it on the homepage of MSN. Brethren, I thank God for the revelation He's given us on this matter and many others. Amen. How do we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ till He comes? Next Sunday at the end of our second assembly, the Lord's Supper. That is exactly how the Bible tells us to remember his death till he comes. He does not want us to remember his death till he comes on Good Friday when we deny the single most important identifying mark of the Son of God. That he would be in the ground three days and three nights. Because there's only one day and two nights between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning. He told that wicked and adulterous generation of his that if they were to kill him and bury him, he would be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights, and we believe that. We have on occasion, this church actually had a good Wednesday service. Because that's when he was crucified and laid in the ground, and he came out on Saturday night for when the ladies arrived early in the morning while it was yet dark, he was long gone. How do we remember his death till he comes? The way he told us. We're Bible Christians. Meaning, we follow the Lord Jesus Christ according to the Bible. We don't care what Rome says, the Protestants say, or even ignorant Baptists say today. How do we remember his resurrection? We baptize the only way the Bible describes. A burial and a resurrection out of water. It's called a resurrection in Romans chapter 6. It's called a resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15.29. It's called a resurrection in 1 Peter 3.21. When they ask, how are you Christians? And how do you remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? The way the Bible tells us to. At the Lord's Supper and in proper baptism. Don't you ever let this church change. You young men, they have all changed around us. We are so incredibly rare in the earth, it scares me, it frightens me, it afflicts me 
but I don't mind too much. And don't fear for me, because I love the Word of God, and we are not going to change under my watch by God's help. Amen. But don't let it ever change. Let us pray. Our Holy Father in heaven, the blessed Lord Jehovah, the captain of the Lord's host, the Lord Jesus Christ, we bless and we praise Thee this day, and we thank Thee for the mystery of the kingdom of heaven and the revelation of Your Word that there are watchers in the earth whom You are able and whom You are willing to call to the task of holy vengeance on religious compromise of your own people, and that they will bring their destroying weapons and their slaughtering weapons and slay all without mercy for having provoked thee to jealousy with their inventions and their modifications of your holy word. We thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, for we are no different than those around us. If the truth be told... We're less than most of them. And Heavenly Father, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would forgive us our sins past, our sinfulness present, and any slips of sin that will come in the future and have mercy upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Cleanse us from all iniquity and wash us and make us clean that this day when we speak and hear boldly, we will be pure in thy sight and not guilty of the deepest form of hypocrisy. Heavenly Father, I thank thee for thy precious word. I rejoice in it. I believe every word of it. I know there are watchers in this assembly. And I pray that you will send forth the one with the linen garment to mark each of us that truly and sincerely sigh and grieve and are stirred and angry over the compromise around us. Father in heaven, be in this assembly with us. Turn our hearts and our minds to thy word. Let us soberly consider these things. And Father, I pray that you will raise up a generation that is young in this church that have not fought the battles that we have fought. They do not understand the danger that we understand. They do not appreciate the the call for vigilance. They do not yet appreciate the things that distinguish us from others and why we worship separately. But I pray that you will convict them and raise them up, that they will preserve the light of the gospel and the truth of your wholesome doctrine in this place, and that though the older generation pass and depart and be with thee, that there will remain a seed of godliness here in Greenville to be a light and a beacon to many as the Christian world implodes in its vain and foolish lustful rush for fables and entertainment and away from sound doctrine and truth. Heavenly Father, we have already prayed, and we pray again.
for every sincere God-called servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would make him strong this day and that you would open his eyes to see things that he's never seen before and to behold wondrous things out of thy law like these two chapters. And that he might take a stand and save the people under his care, the sheep of his pasture, under the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for our nation that as it implodes into a cesspool of greedy lasciviousness, ignorance and malice against the truth of your word that you would by legislative or executive or judicial decree preserve a way for your people to continue to lead the lives that you have called us to in this world. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for every good thing. We thank thee most for he who sits at thy right hand, he who laid down his life willingly for us, and rose from the dead after three days and three nights, according to his own prophecy and power. He had power to lay his life down, and he had power to take it up again, and he did so for us. And we thank thee for him. Thank you for saving our souls. Thank you for sending the gospel of truth, that we might know the good news of what the Bible declares to us, of thee, of thy son Jesus, of salvation by grace alone, and of how we ought to worship Thee. We have been given a heritage and a treasure that is great. O Lord God, forgive us where we have neglected it, and stir us up to lay hold of it, to hide it in our hearts, to delight in it, to share it with others, to warn, to provoke, to teach all those that we are able to influence. Heavenly Father, as we worship Thee now, receive our efforts as the delight of Thy heart. We love Thee, O Lord Jehovah, and we love Thy Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that by Thy Spirit, You would not only be in this assembly, but in our hearts. And lift us all up together to worship Thee acceptably through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in His name. In his name only, that we pray, amen. Amen. If the Lord Jehovah was filled with fury at his people and slaughtered them without mercy, under a covenant that was weak, beggarly, carnal, and very inferior to the New Testament, What will he do to those who compromise, corrupt, and pollute the worship of his only begotten and beloved son? Do I have a biblical basis for drawing the comparison? Four times in the book of Hebrews. 2, 6, 10, and 12. The apostle warns, that if every transgression under the Old Testament received a just recompense of reward, how much more shall anyone who corrupts the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ be guilty of? And again, the words are written to the church of the New Testament. It says in Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing, to fall into the hands of the living God. But do you know what it says next to that? 
the Lord shall judge His people. We have a holy and blessed privilege to worship in the truth that God has shown us. But let's make sure that we're honest and sincere and whole in our worship here, in our hearts, in our lips, and in our homes. Let us be consistently holy with what the Lord has shown us. I cringe. I tremble. I rage. That the Lord Jesus Christ is being worshipped by a sunrise today. They would tell us, we're not worshipping the sun, S-U-N. We're worshipping the sun, S-O-N. If you're worshipping the sun, S-O-N, then why are you out there on a dark hillside worshipping the rising sun, S-U-N, which the sun, S-O-N, never told you to do, but the sun, S-O-N, of perdition told you to do out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. They will end their services quickly today in order for the children to chase around on the church grounds looking for painted eggs. Rabbits laying eggs is a pretty powerful reproductive symbol, isn't it? Right. You know, when at the age of 26, I had four children at Michigan National Bank of Detroit, one of my nicknames was Rabbit. Because I was so different from all the other guys that were going to wait until they were 35 to have their first child. Because rabbits reproduce rapidly, and eggs are a symbol of fertility. Eggs are an ob- the result of ovulation and necessary for conception. And so we have rabbits with eggs, and it, even an idiot should be able to figure out the symbology of those two things together. Right. And they will do that in the name of Jesus. And how many gospel stories will be told this day by using colored eggs in Sunday school classes? This is where we stand, and this is how we tell the story of the Lord Jesus Christ's birth, death, and resurrection. Two and a half weeks ago, Brother Newell led you in remembering the report of the spies and what it did to the church of God in the wilderness. Ten spies were fearful. And we're willing to go against the Word of God and the promises of God. And two, we're willing to stand. The ten were killed immediately, and the entire nation was killed over 40 years. Except those who didn't know the difference between good and evil for that great decision. And I hope that that was provoking to you, and I thank you, brother, for those minutes that you spent two and a half weeks ago on Wednesday evening. Would there be Joshua's and Caleb's among us? Amen. Who will fear no man and who will have great faith in God and attempt great things for him. I'm thankful that two weeks ago our brother Jim came from Michigan and preached to you the glory of Christ's death and the glory of Christ's resurrection. Amen. That's how we celebrate it. We preach it. Amen. We don't paint eggs and we don't go to sunrise services. And we don't drape purple cloths over crosses. He hung naked. If you're going to be honest, hang a naked man out there. 
Don't put a purple cloth on the cross. I'm thankful for his preaching. He has written me, and I have it here in the pulpit. Very thankful to all of you for your kindness, the warm reception, the enthusiasm for hearing the Word of God, your excitement and appreciation for the truth, the gift, and your kindness and hospitality and friendship that you showed him. He described it to me as pure joy to have been here. And so we accomplished one of our purposes. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege. Amen. The next week, I thank Christine and Sarah. Christine DeForge, Sarah Pipkin, and the teenage girls, and I don't know all the details, and I wish I could have been there, for all that you did with the ladies and their daughters and the young girls of this church. Praise the Lord. Amen. I've heard very nice descriptions about it. I'm willing to hear more. Anna, you can come and tell me about what occurred with the ladies and the girls. And I thank you for that care and all the planning and the effort that went into that. That's how we build up our little family in this church and how we build the body is by efforts like that. I'm thankful that a week ago, Brother Newell started out with James 1.25 about the blessedness in looking into the perfect law of liberty and and continuing therein, that there's a reward and a blessing. I'm thankful for Brother Eric taking Psalm 119 and using a couple of its sections to remind you about the importance of having a thirst and a hunger for the living God and for seeking Him and His Word. I'm thankful for Brother Newell speaking to you about spiritual active hearing and how when you're in the house of God for the two and a half percent of your weekly time, you prepare, you participate, and you listen attentively to grasp everything you can from God's Word and to take home as much as you can to apply to your feet and your hands and your lips. Appreciate that, brother. You are a faithful Joshua and have always been so. Nathan, thank you for exhorting the church to spiritual exercises. Amen. Thank you, Mark, for recording all of this so that I could listen to every syllable. Amen. I trust, son, that you have been practicing those spiritual exercises yourself and those that heard you have. Matthew, you did an excellent job presenting the virtue of self-control and ruling our spirits. Charlie, thank you for warning them about having their own financial houses in order for the trouble that could come, should come, most likely will come on this nation. Right. I thank all of you for helping. Would the six young men please stand? Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I mean no disrespect to you old 20-year-olds that I'm not including. I thank God for everything I've heard. I haven't heard the recording of it yet, but I've heard a number of eyewitness testimonies of how sober, serious, scriptural you were in the house of the Lord on a Wednesday night. The method of my madness in such choices is for you to buy into this church as important 
young members in it, young men in it, and that you will be convicted by God the Holy Spirit to keep this church and not let it move away from the hope of the gospel and from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. James Edwards, would you please come forward? It's not church discipline, son. (laughs) A brother in this church that was greatly moved and encouraged by what you all did has given you a token FRN to get your five companions and for the six of you to go out and have a meal together and you're to be in charge of that meal and arrange it and to keep it spiritually minded and exhort each other in the Lord. We as a church love you and I thank you as your pastor. I'm thankful for everyone that participated. The 30-year-olds in here, please don't be offended. Do the 30-year-olds in here have enough maturity to know the importance of the teenage members in this assembly?